Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, I welcome on the SASPOD Fayad Ali, PhD candidate in the Department of Political Science at Stanford. His dissertation title is Power, Exclusion and Identity, the Politics of Muslim Marginalization in India. And his research explores key questions related to democracy, identity, intergroup relations and religious conflict. Fayad, we have a lot to talk about today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Lalita. I really appreciate it. It's so fun to have you on the SASPOD. Um, please start by telling our audience what you would like them to know about you. Introduce yourself. Yeah, so um, I know, as you mentioned, um, so I'm in my sixth year of the PhD uh, program in political science at Stanford. And I'm also a pre-doctoral fellow um, at the Center for Democracy Development and the Rule of Law here at Stanford. Mm -hmm. um, I've long been interested in the politics of marginalized groups. Um, and during uh, my undergraduate at Dartmouth College, I focused on Muslim communities in the UK. Um, when I started my PhD, I began to shift my regional interests a bit um, to South Asia, particularly India as I just found it a fascinating site for minority politics and to really explore some of the big questions um, related to how groups engage in politics, are included or excluded by politics, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, when you say you found India a fascinating site, uh, it suggests that you do not um, have a personal connection to India, is that correct? Yeah, so, you know, weirdly enough, I actually have no um, uh, sort of family members or any sort of immediate close familial connections in India. My family uh, came over from uh, uh, this Indian subcontinent to Guyana in South America um, as like indentured laborers back in the time of British rule. So um, it's been a long time since like members of my family have been connected to India. Um, and I was born in Guyana um, and my family and I moved uh, to the US when I was two. Um, and I grew up in Brooklyn, New York and in a suburb outside of South Florida. Great. Thank you for uh, thank you for setting the context there. Let's uh, talk about your dissertation. Uh, I know you could talk about this for a long time, and feel free <laughs> to do that. Uh, and, uh, so tell us about what you're looking at, why you're looking at it, and then perhaps you can kind of end with your main findings. Sure, uh, definitely. Um, so my dissertation broadly studies the causes and the consequences of political exclusion in multi-ethnic democracies. And I focus specifically on the political and socioeconomic experience of Muslims in India in particular. Um, and so, you know, observers of India um, will, will sort of note that over the past several decades, uh, many marginalized groups in India, including members of the scheduled caste, members of the scheduled tribes, uh, women have seen tremendous political progress. Um, and, and a lot of this comes along with the sort of 
um, you know, government mandated quotas or reservations. And so these groups have seen a, a sort of upward trend in their political inclusion due to those. By no means do I want to suggest that this is, you know, that these groups have fully politically included, um, but their trajectory is an upward one. Um, and that stands in stark contrast to Indian Muslims who have experienced no real measurable progress um, and rather their social and political um, sort of condition has deteriorated. And so, so this was sort of the, the sort of motivating setup for, for what I wanted to look into. And so, you know, an, an example of this would be that, you know, while Muslims make up 14% uh, of the Indian population, they're currently about less than 5% of the national parliament, right? And so, so that's just a way to kind of think about what we would mean by political exclusion. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people who have followed Indian politics over time um, could sort of try to link this, this, you know, political exclusion to a variety of different changes that have happened across, um, you know, Indian history since independence, including, you know, the sort of decline of the dominant uh, sort of one party Congress uh, sort of system. Um, also the rise of the ruling Bharatiya Janta Party, the BJP under Prime Minister Modi, um, and also the expansion of these regional parties at the state level that are capturing different sort of social groups in their vote bases. Um, and so what I ultimately showed my dissertation and what ultimately motivated me in this process was that I didn't think that these changes just at the broad level were fully capturing like why we see this, this you know, continuous exclusion um, of Muslims in India. Um, and, and, and beyond that, I think like more theoretically, I think it's important to study Muslims in India because they represent a particular type of marginalized group that doesn't have institutional protections such as quotas or reservations. And a lot of political science literature has focused on these groups that get these reservations that allow them to come to office for a particular period of time um, but Muslims in India and about 74% of marginalized groups worldwide don't have public policies in place that help bring them to power. Mm -hmm. And so really at the core of my dissertation is trying to understand how do groups like these gain power and why is it that they would be unable to sustain it? Um, so that's sort of the broad setup. Um, I think, you know, one sort of key empirical finding that I have um, and sort of one of the main cruxes of the dissertation um, is this finding and this argument that I make that when a marginalized group comes to power without institutional protection, such as quotas or reservations, it can actually ultimately harm the fu their future political prospects. And this stands in contrast to other work that finds that when marginalized groups make it to power, often with these protections, they can help sustain and continue to build their power and change right. attitudes and sort of affect change for these groups that, that lead to real substantive representation. Um, and so, you know, I argue that this process by which you come to power and are unable to sustain it is, is called the representation trap. And it essentially is driven by both the consolidation of the dominant group sort of against the marginalized group, but also the divisions that become activated within the marginalized group after seeing someone like them in power and realizing what it actually means to have someone like them in power. 
So when you say political representation, you're, you, you mean the people that are in power rather than the people who vote, or is it a little bit of both? And what is the interplay of mm -hmm. this? Yeah, so I'm I'm really thinking a lot about elected office. Um, and in a lot of my work, I think primarily about state assembly uh, elections and, and the members of the legislative assembly, as they're called, who are elected, you know, on five-year schedules. And, and not only are real, like, you know, we, we traditionally think of them as like a legislative arm, right? But these MLAs are actually at the front line of dealing with the problems of the day-to-day -day citizens in India. So oftentimes people will contact their MLA for, you know, access to particular goods and services. And so that, that's what I'm thinking about. In the voting realm, we've actually seen there's not drastic differences between the political participation in the context of voting or even other forms of political participation between Muslims and non-Muslims um, in India. Generally, we see that they're, you know, it's not equal, but they're generally sort of similar. Um, and you often actually find um, that Muslims are pretty, pretty present on the voting day at the polling booth. So I'm thinking a little bit more about, you know, what we in political science would call like political elites who are, you know, running through political parties and trying to get elected. Um, do you find on the whole, and I wanted to, I want to ask you about your field work, but I have a couple mm -hmm. of um, uh, questions before that. Uh, sure. Can we can we assume that people will vote for um, uh, for themselves? I guess is what I'm thinking. Like, do Muslims vote for Muslim uh, politicians, or or is it not as simple as that? Yeah. So I think it's you know it's it, it's it's been a long debate in political science whether you vote for your co-ethnic right? right um and in some cases you know you'd think that like yes of course you'd vote for your co-ethnic but there are so many strategic elements that voters consider when they're voting right it's not only like it does the person look like me but it's also does the person is a person likely to win yeah. what happens if they don't win um and so these are all considerations and you know i really think about in my project voting decisions being made on sort of two main dimensions. So on one dimension, you think about things like policy um, or ideology, which are, you know, a set of, you know, basket of things that the candidate may um, prescribe to in the policy domain. Um, and voters may have certain preferences about those. Um, but the other thing is they also do consider identity. And it's both identities such as what is the religion of the candidate? What is the caste of the candidate? It could even be what is the language that the candidate speaks. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I don't have a sort of, you know, blanketed say on that most voters vote on one dimension over another. But I do think that, you know, they're considering a variety of things and making their decisions. And it's not always going to be the case that like all Muslim voters vote for only Muslim candidates. Right, sure. Um, it's so, because there are so many political parties in India, it's so different from the last mm -hmm. here in the United States. Um, institutional protections, you've mentioned that a few times and, mm -hmm. and talked about the reserva reservations and, and quotas. Um, because you work with a group that has does not have these quotas, um, I have two questions. One, do people draw on your work? People that are against quotas for whatever mm. reason, do they use your work to bolster their argument, which I imagine mm. is a side effect that you weren't mm. intending? Um, and two, is there any movement at all to also have Muslims be protected by these uh, reservations? Mm. So um these are great questions um you know on the on the on the first one um you know what one sort of implication of my project is that um you know 
the coming to power can have, you know, a darker effect than we may expect, right? Um, and by no means do I want to suggest that that is definite to happen, right? It doesn't mean that Muslims shouldn't push for power. I think what it means is that we need to pay attention to the set of incentives that exist for majoritarian elites and for also, you know, opposition parties that may or may not want to include Muslims. And it's really about changing the structures of those incentives to help us think about, you know, how we can sort of flip this, this representation trap or stop this trap from happening. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that what you know the, the the question of quotas and for Muslims is definitely a fraught one. Um, you know, prior to um, uh, independence, Muslims had separate electorates. Um, this was sort of during British rule, um, where Muslim represent Muslim voters would vote for a set of Muslim representatives that were a separate electorate oh. outside of the other electorate. Um, and so, at independence, you know, of course, the scheduled castes and the scheduled tribe are given quotas and reservations. And, you know, folks have looked into sort of the constitutional debates that happened during this time period to understand why it is that Muslims don't end up with political protections at the, at the sort of independence moment. Um, and I've read some of these um, constituent assembly debates. And what's interesting is, you know, it's it definitely wasn't that it was completely off the table right from the start, um, but it also the way that partition happened and the way that it heightened religious tensions and also set up a moment where Muslims who stayed in India were sort of also trying to demonstrate their national sort of um, allegiances, you know, to, to, to sort of back down from asking for quotas. And, and given the, the sort of violence that occurred during partition on religious lines, it's very hard to make that case for quotas. And so um, you don't really see many people advocating for quotas on religious grounds right yeah. now. Um, and I, I think it would be um, I'd be um, surprised if we saw that because I think politically it may not be the most savvy approach. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, that the the story around independence uh, and 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 how the quotas came to be that you just talked about very interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but that makes perfect sense. That wasn't the time, and the time is certainly is not now. Um, I know you go to India frequently for field work and um, a lot of what you're talking about sounds very data driven. So I don't mm -hmm. want to question the, the validity <laughs> of your field work, but what do you do when you're there? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, I think it's a good moment to talk a bit about just like, how did I, how do I make this argument? Right. Like, yeah. like what am I using to support this argument? Um, and, you know, I'm a big believer in research taking multiple approaches to really triangulate and understand a phenomena. Right. Um, it's very hard to just pinpoint um, a big system and the process that's going on with just one form of data. And so um, in my, my project, I draw on sort of three main forms of data. So the first is sort of standard administrative election data. So that's just the election results across, you know, from, from we have them from sort of around independence onward to today. Um, and a lot of my analysis is focused on this time period between 1977 and 2007, which represents the third delimitation of election 
electoral boundaries. Um, and it also represents a time period prior to the rise of the current um, uh, government. And so um, it's important to look at that time period because I wanted to understand like what was the process by which we get to this current moment and were there things that were happening along the way that helped push us in this direction. And so that election data allows me to do a set of you know statistical analyses that sort of try to pinpoint that when a Muslim wins, there's a lower likelihood of a Muslim coming to power again in the subsequent election. And then I also try to tease out exactly what's going on by looking at um, sort of the way that vote shares change in support of particular parties, the expansion of Muslim candidates that occurs after you see a Muslim come to power in your constituency, and the way that Muslim votes can sometimes be divided across some of these sort of viable Muslim candidates in that next election. And so, so that's what I use the election data for, to sort of set up the general patterns that we observe electorally. Mm -hmm. um, the second sort of set of, an, of um, you know, sort of uh, analysis that I do is using a um, sort of voter survey that I fielded in India um, last year. Um, and this is a survey of about 5,000 Hindu and Muslim voters mm -hmm. in the North Indian states of Uttar Pradesh and Bihar. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of the survey is really to understand how are voters thinking about their representative and the sort of identity of their representative and what that means for you know their everyday lives, but what that also means for who they're going to vote for in the next election. Um, and so really at the crux of the design of that survey was trying to actually compare voters that were on opposite sides of constituency boundaries where one set of voters had a Muslim representative in a particular time period and another set of voters who were just located maybe 10 kilometers away had a Hindu representative because they were in a different constituency. Mm -hmm. And so the purpose of that is to really try to limit the set of differences between these voters, except for who their representative was, to help us understand sort of the, the, the effects that having a particular identity representative um, can have on a variety of outcomes. Um, and then the final set of um, sort of empirical evidence that I provide in the in the dissertation project is drawing from elite and voter interviews. And I conducted about 150 elite and voter interviews um, across fieldwork in India and primarily focused on North India, but I've also done some fieldwork in um, other South Indian states too. Um, and so there the real sort of purpose of these interviews is, is to really understand how voters are thinking about things beyond just answering something on a survey, but like what are the tangible experiences they had? Like, tell me about a moment when you had this representative and what happened and what it was like to go to this person for, you know, a particular need that you had. And so you actually get the stories of what's happening in people's lives when they have a particular representative. And on the other side of that, the elite interviews are really where you gain leverage to understand what's happening in the space of political parties and candidate selection, which is notoriously a black box that we know very little about. You start to understand how party elites are thinking about the decisions to field candidates, how they're thinking about the possibility of the Muslim vote splitting, how they're trying to handle potential majoritarianism that could be in response to a Muslim coming to power. Mm -hmm. um, and those you know, elite interviews were really insightful to help me sort of construct the set of ways that 
when a marginalized group comes to power, it actually affects both elites and voters that ultimately lead to this process that I describe in the um, in the broader project. So, you know, I try to tr sort of try to triangulate between um, these sets of, of methods to, to, re to really tell a full story about what's going on um, with, with Muslims in India. I love that. I love that there's so much like personal interaction to kind of bolster the data. That's uh, that that's always good. Um, I have a question about Muslim identity, and I'm going to go off on a little tangent. So if you mm -hmm. the audience will just indulge me, because um, I was uh, thinking about this recently. Um, so um, I've been listening to this podcast about Shamima Begum, who, in case um, audience members don't know, she uh, is a British woman who joined ISIS at the age of 15. Um, some years back, I think in 2015, um, and um, has now been stripped of her British citizenship, um, even though she has no other citizenship. So she has been rendered stateless uh, because she joined ISIS uh, when she was a child. And um, that uh, it came back into my mind also because that decision was recently upheld by the British courts. So she appealed and the British courts uh, 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 held it. And the person who started the the um, removing her citizenship was the then UK Home Secretary Sajid Javid, um, himself also a Muslim. And I found myself really sitting with that in a very uncomfortable way, like how can he do that to her? Um, but that's also a, a kind of a weird a conflation of identities and identity politics. So I want to ask you about that, like when people have like the easiest reading of him doing that is like he's just thrown his hat in he's a conservative mm. I just need to clarify that perhaps I don't know if it really matters but he's thrown his hat in with mainstream British white establishment and so his Muslim identity is irrelevant or perhaps he, he's actively kind of trying to push against it or is it much more that Muslim quote unquote just doesn't mean anything and there's much more going on yeah, I think um, I mean this is this is a fascinating incident, um, and I think it really picks up on you know a theme that exists in my work and in other you know folks who work on understanding politics of you know marginalized groups and minority groups um, is that there's often a tendency to sort of think about these groups as sort of a collective group that acts right. together and should all do the same thing, right? right. Um, and I think that, um, you know, even even in the, the discourse of, of politics in India, oftentimes we have a voting block and we think about everyone in that identity group acting the same way and voting for the same person as a as a block, right? right. Um, and, and I think what my work is trying to push against is the idea that all of these individuals are going to vote the same way and have the same views of, of what it's like to have someone like them in power, right? Um, and part of my work underscores that when a marginalized group member comes to power, they often are not able to only focus on the marginalized group and the needs of that marginalized group because they risk having a backlash from the majority group. And so the, they really are balancing this, this process by which they're you know, sort of providing for the dominant group, but also trying to provide for the marginalized group. And in some cases, and, and in my work, I observe that sometimes these politicians will end up prioritizing you know, sort of sub-identities within their particular marginalized identity. So it may not be about being Muslim, it may be about a particular caste or sectarian identity that they're focusing on. And that has impacts on 
voters who think that, you know, they're not properly represented by someone that they perhaps thought would have represented them before that person came to power. And so um, I think, you know, it's, it, it is, you know, both situations are obviously, you know, drastically different, but I think it speaks to the fact that we do have to sort of think through whether all members of a particular identity group that we label them as would act in a particularly same way and why they may act differently in different times and how that affects, you know, members of the marginalized group experiencing, um, you know, themselves in power. Yeah, for sure. And this is a, a, a conversation that happens a lot also in the United States mm -hmm. about, um, quote unquote, Hispanic voters, the Latinx mm -hmm. voting bloc, which is so mm -hmm. uh, um, multifarious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Fayad, I'm mindful of the time, so I want to yeah. take you um, somewhere completely different, which is that um, you mentioned when we spoke before that you've been working on um, facial recognition um, technology in Telangana and mm -hmm. the effects on political uh, representation. Mm -hmm. And I find this fascinating because I feel there you are doing this in Telangana, um, which is a, a relatively new state in South India for mm -hmm. our listeners who may not know this. Um, I feel that there's massive worldwide implications to this work. You know, I see mm -hmm. you as a real trailblazer, so I'm excited <laughs> about it. Uh, tell us about this work. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so I recently had a paper published in the Journal of Politics that studies uh, how facial recognition technology being used in polling stations affects the turnout of voters in elections. Um, and you know, it's a very small scale pilot. And you know, my perception on the project is I'm really trying to start to understand this question as facial recognition is being incorporated into electoral processes. And so, you know, I find that having facial recognition in a polling station has a negative effect on turnout, lowering turnout. Um, but, you know, it is a pilot experiment. And so I don't want to overstate the impact of that necessarily. But I think what it means is we need to be paying attention broadly to how the expansion of, you know, varieties of technologies that could, you know, identify an individual um, and could seem like it, it's, you know, in some ways a bit of surveillance, right. how that could impact certain individuals feeling comfortable showing up to a polling station, right? Um, and Belangana is really at the forefront of sort of technological um, sort of advancements in the election process. Um, and I think that as like, you know, just as electronic voting machines or EVMs were scaled up in India, starting in a particular location and then expanding more broadly, I think it's possible that we may start to see that facial recognition technology could be used as an identification um, sort of um, system when you're showing up at a polling station. And so I imagine this will get scaled up more broadly. And I, and I hope that the paper really helps to identify this as an area for political scientists to work more deeply on and start to understand what might be some of the mechanisms that may cause people to not show up to vote if there's a um, facial recognition system at the station. And so in the paper, I explore and sort of talk through three sets of considerations or mechanisms for lowering turnout. Um, one being sort of just logistical complications with it, leading to potentially long lines or, um, you know, making it more difficult to get through the process. Um, there's also a possibility of, of this sort of system of identification shifting the way that, you know, varieties of actors may engage in attempts to fraudulently vote. And that could sort of shift turnout. Um, and then there's also the possibility that certain groups who feel more nervous about sort of facial recognition or surveillance technology 
could just not want to show up and have their photo taken um, because they don't want to sort of be captured in um, in a system by the state. And this this sort of speaks to Jim Scott's sort of understanding of legibility and the way that the state expands legibility um, in, in political science. And, and so, um, you know, I, I sort of see the paper as hopefully trying to identify this as an area for future work and, and to really not only pay attention to the effects of technology on, you know, sort of democratic processes, but also like whether there are differential effects for marginalized populations versus others. Yeah, I feel the implications. I mean, if I think about the United States and 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 all the, the discussions and the debates, um, somewhat politically motivated, no doubt, but around voter fraud. And, mm -hmm. and so then, you know, one argument could be like, okay, you just stick in facial recognition technology mm -hmm. and that solves it. But we know that A, it doesn't work well mm -hmm. for all populations. So... And and as you say, there there might be particular groups who are, I mean, we're probably already captured all the time anyway. So mm -hmm. I don't know how realistic this yeah. anxiety actually is. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, it's just one more tool yes. in the state surveillance mechanism. Definitely. Yeah, so I get that. Um, I want to ask you what you're doing next. And uh, this is a bit of a leading question because I know that's <laughs> good news. So please share it with our audience who will be at this point delighted for you because they've been we've been walking with you for the past half <laughs> in your work. And now we get to the kind of uh, the big uh, un, un, uh, the big reveal. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Um, uh, so I'll be joining um, the Harvard Government Department as first as a postdoc for a year from uh, this summer to next year summer. And then in the summer of 2024, I'll start as an assistant professor on faculty um, in the government department at Harvard. So, you know, I'm super excited to move to the Cambridge area um, and to be back on the East Coast. Well, we're going to miss you a lot, but um, I'm very happy that you will remain a colleague and hopefully yes. you'll remain in the world of South Asia as well. Uh, and and you can come back once you're working on your next book <laughs> back and talk about it because I, I feature alumni uh, on the podcast as well. So you always have a connection with us. That sounds great. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Thank you so much for making time for the podcast today, Fayad. Thank you, Lolita. I really appreciate it. Uh, I also want to thank Soham Shiva for the intro and outro and Simrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. I'm a fan.